On today's episode of Mistaken Identity, we dive into the world of product leadership and head down the path of understanding what goes into building great products with John Gannon at Venture 5 Media. John has spent more than a decade building venture capital content and education products. John is a co-founder of Going VC Partners, is an active investor and advisor for more than 20 startups personally and through Going VC Partners. Stay tuned as we explore what's required to build great products that customers love, uncover key insights for aspiring product leaders, and the innovations that VC firms are investing in. This podcast is brought to you by Okta. Join us on the road June 13 in Washington, D.C. for our next city tour. See how we can help you modernize your security posture while still building experiences your customers will love, live in person or streaming online. Learn more at okta.com slash DC event. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the Mistaken Identity Podcast. I'm very excited today to be joined with John Gannon. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks a lot. I'm really happy to be here. Really excited to have you today. Maybe give everyone listening today a bit of your background and you know what your current role uh, is. Sure. So I'm currently the founder and CEO of Venture5 Media. And Venture5 Media is a company that builds, buys, and backs creator-led businesses. Previous to that, I have a long career in product management and enterprise software, cloud, B2B in general, uh, with companies like DigitalOcean, Amazon Web Services, and even earlier on, prior to cloud, the precursor to cloud, VMware, which I was a part of in the early 2000s as the company was really starting to hit its stride and, and take off. I'm really excited to have you on the show today to talk a little around you know product management, that process, some of your product leadership experience as well. And even a common thread, I think, of like build versus buy in the software industry. But maybe to kick it off and thinking about your time at DigitalOcean, you know, very high level, what was your approach to product leadership there? And how have you seen that sort of evolve over your uh, experience? So my approach to product management has evolved over time for sure. And funny enough, and it actually has nothing to do with the current podcast, but given there's this is a podcast from, from Okta. At DigitalOcean, I worked with someone who uh, really mentored me in terms of product management, a gentleman named Nick Wade, who's now part of the Auth0 division at, at Okta. And Nick really taught me an approach that is really focused on how do you enable the individual team members to really have agency and control over what they're working on. And as a product manager, there's the whole sort of like product manager is the CEO of the product. I actually don't believe that. I think the product manager is more like the executive producer or the producer, if you want to kind of compare it to making a movie. So you think about a producer, they don't, I mean, they, they make a lot of decisions, but they are not sort of the boss of everyone. And so they really have to figure out how do I get the best out of my actors? How do I get the best out of my sound people, right? How do I get my best out of the wardrobe department? And so for a product leader, I think the analogies would be, how do I get the most impact out of my design team? How do I get the most impact out of individual engineers? How do I get the most impact out of software architects? How do I get the most impact out of the security team that I need to work with? 
to get my product launched in a secure and stable way. So that's how I think about it. It's a little bit different, I, I think, than uh, sort of the, the product manager is sort of like the overarching leader. Uh, I don't really buy into that. And, and I think the only way you really create a truly empowered product team is to actually have individuals on the product team be empowered. Yeah, I, I really think you need that collaboration, right? And I really like how you how you characterize that because I think typically what product managers or at least the industry and, uh, and the function of product management has done is do exactly that, is say, you know, the product manager is the CEO of the product where I really, I think it takes a village and I really like this idea that you kind of brought forward about collaboration and it taking a, a cross-functional team to develop really great products. Maybe talk a, a little more around that. What's your experience been in working with some of these engineering and software development teams to really drive that collaboration so you can you can achieve these outcomes that you're trying to achieve? As a product manager, in terms of trying to really foster that team environment where everyone feels comfortable and, and included in terms of contributing to not only sort of like the daily, here is the feature we produce, but also to really connect with the team mission and sort of the, the why of, of why a thing is being done. Just like kind of really tangible, tactical things I'll, I'll bring up that I think could be helpful for listeners who are in product leadership roles. And when I say product leadership, I don't mean necessarily product management. It could be you're an engineering manager on a product team. You're a design lead, right? Product leadership comes from everywhere. But I'll give one very specific example from a, a recent quarterly planning process that we ran. And, and it was company-wide, but each team ran their own you know, sort of piece of it. And I think the prevailing sort of standard way that a team would do that is they would say, okay, team, here's the process that we're going to follow. And we're going to have meetings on this day, this day, and this day. We're all going to get together. We're all going to show up. And there's a book that I read that uh, I read it a few years ago, and it really influenced how I think about uh, not, not communication by itself, but sort of communication in groups is a book called Community by Peter Block. And this book just has some really unique ideas that I had not really considered in terms of how do we gather groups? How do we gather people? How do we honor and include everyone there? So one of the ideas that came from that book was that when you are creating a gathering of people, that people need to be there willingly. So if you think about uh, like a work meeting, right? Someone's manager's like, okay, like these five people, like you have to come to this meeting. But for quarterly planning, I was thinking, hey, you know what? I want folks to be really bought into this plan. And, and I actually want them to create the plan. I don't want to create the plan. I want to shepherd the creation of the plan, but I want everyone to really own this plan and make it their plan. And so one way that I did that is I made a point of saying at the beginning of the process, we're going to go into quarterly planning. We are going to have some uh, some meetings that we will we will gather. If you want to focus on something else during those times, if you don't feel it's a good use of your time, I am 100% supportive. Go do what you need to do in terms of whatever feature you're working on or you know whatever whatever you you feel like you need to work on that day. And there's no penalty for this. There's you know I'm not trying to fake you out. Like I really mean it. Do what you feel like you need to do to make the biggest impact to this team. If you would like to gather, you know, I'll send a meeting invite. I'll flag, I'm flagging everyone is optional on that. And if you'd like to come, come, we'd, we'd love to have you. But if you don't come, 
that's totally 100% fine. And I repeated this a few times because people probably aren't used to hearing that. Like, here's a meeting you don't actually have to show up to. And I think it did contribute to that quarterly planning process in terms of people being really engaged and excited. I mean, we had really, you know, hour-long plus meetings, which usually can get pretty uh, tedious, right, in large groups. And just super energy throughout, like going over, but people still super fired up. And these are all people, and then actually the whole team did show up, but they were there because they wanted to be there. And it's actually a really easy thing to do. Like any product team could implement that in any planning cycle immediately. They could even do it in sprint planning. You know, some teams plan a sprint completely with the whole team. Some teams maybe have a few representatives, but as a product leader, you could make that sprint planning optional and the people who really want to be there will be there. The people who don't, don't. And that's that's actually okay because it's up to them, right? It's their time. I think that's a really good thought on, you know, bringing the people into the team and motivating them around an outcome and a goal. Thinking about how products get built, successful products get built, what do you think goes in or what does it take to build a successful product? A few things I would say define the success of a product you could certainly argue that it's how much did the cash register ring, right? In terms of the, the revenue value to the company and the enterprise value that that generates for a company. But that's not why people work. That's not why people show up, right? People show up because they want to feel like they're contributing to something. And so I think aside from hitting those goals, and, and most people on most teams are very motivated by that, right? They're like, give me a goal. I want to hit it. But they also want to feel fulfilled in their work. They want to feel like they grew, that they were stretched, that they were put into situations that maybe made them feel uncomfortable because it was it was a growth opportunity and they rose to the occasion. So providing those kinds of opportunities, I think, is a successful part of a successful product uh, creation and, and launch and rollout. Another piece that doesn't really get, I think, talked about as much is we really focus in as product leaders on like engineering product and like design, right? But to launch a successful product, particularly at larger companies, there are a number of different constituents that one needs to bring on board and get buy-in. And it's very different when you are approaching, say, your finance team as a group that is separate from the product team. They're actually an extension of the product team. You need to price your product. You need to make sure the margins are the way that they should be. Uh, you need to make sure that you're charging tax for the products, right? And, and all these sorts of, of things, uh, marketing the products. So one of the things that I also tried to do is, and we had a great program manager who facilitated a lot of this, but bringing along those other groups and making them part of the greater team recognizing them for their contributions and really making them part of the team and making them bought in that they can help make this product successful, right? They are a part of this and they're not sort of a you know, separate group over here that like, oh, we, we, we sort of just have to work with them because that's like a check the box thing, but actually bringing them in and making them a part of it. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, right, all departments have a stake in the success of the business, right? So like you said, I think it's critically important that we think about the adjacent stakeholders as part of the adjacent product team and bringing them all along, finance, legal, operations, et cetera. It just, it, it just shows you how many things go into creating you know, a successful product. Maybe thinking a little around the process of how a product gets made, right? Could you describe some of the ups, the downs, I assume it's not a linear, you know, sort of a, a path to, 
you know, ideating on a product and launching or creating it, what are some of the ups and the downs and even the highs and lows of that product creation process or that product management process? If you're working in a, I'm going to do air quotes, agile environment is that you're constantly adjusting your plans. Your vision should be solid, but your plans are constantly adjusting, right? Sprint to sprint. You're really evolving as you learn more, as the product develops, et cetera. One of the things that I've found is as you're getting closer to a key ship date, you become uh, very keenly focused on where can we cut scope safely? And learning that skill, I think, is critical to any product leader, be they coming from the engineering side of the house or product side of the house, design, et cetera. And I'll give you a good example of that. So at DigitalOcean, I was product manager for our marketplace. So we worked with a variety of third-party vendors, brought them kind of into the fold and made their offerings accessible to our customers in a very seamless way. And so one of the parts of the marketplace launch was we were launching a front-end site for the marketplace, but then we also had a vendor management platform where the software vendors could go in and, and manage their entry in the marketplace, if you will. We had split up the delivery of this, so we, we launched the front-end first to customers, and then the vendor side of things was pretty manual in the beginning, but we knew we would build out a self-service system for them, and we kind of worked on that in parallel, but it was going to ship later. And I remember sitting in a, uh, actually probably on Slack initially with one of our senior front end folks who was saying, you know, did, did the right thing. He kind of raised the flag and say, hey, I, there's this feature that, that you want that was related to uh, uploading logos. And he's like, I don't think, we, like, we're not going to be able to get this done by the, the ship date. And so fortunately in that case, because we started with a very manual process for those vendors to manage their listings, we actually were just using a Google Sheet, downloading the information, and then running it through a script that one of the engineers on the team had put together. And so because we used that Google form for at least a few months, we actually knew how the vendors were interacting with their side of the equation. And we knew through that that the logo upload was not actually that important. Like the, the, they would upload a logo once and then they were done. So we figured, hey, worst case, we can sort of add these by hand for people if they need to. We don't need to hold back the whole you know, ship date just for this thing. And so I would say that's, that's sort of a down that led to an up in the sense that, yeah, obviously we wanted to ship that before we got out the door. But when push came to shove, we took a good hard look at that feature. It was actually 100% fine to cut it. But had we not taken that approach earlier to say, we're not going to go and waterfall this thing and build this big vendor backend where we actually have no idea like how the vendors want to interact with this thing, that really saved us a lot of grief throughout that whole product development process. Now, the flip side of this is that one could argue that maybe we uh, were doing it in that way with the Google form and the, the manual scripts for a bit too long, right? And that had some operational overhead for the team. So there is a balance there. We learned a lot. The trade-off was that we maybe lost a little bit of engineering bandwidth because they need to manage more manual processes. Yeah, that's I think that's great intel. One of the things I was thinking about when you're when you're talking is around the customer feedback and how it's integral into the product delivery and development process as well. How uh what you know, what experiences do you have in sort of ways and points in the product delivery lifecycle where you're pulling that information 
from customer feedback to kind of get that back into the cycle so that you can iterate on that, make things better based on customer feedback. Do you, do you have any experience doing that or where have you seen that fall effectively within the product delivery uh, lifecycle? We had some pretty strong UX designers on the team and we were usually able within say a week, if we had a concept of a new feature or something we would, were thinking about delivering, the uh, the UX lead would usually partner up with probably an engineer, uh, someone uh, on the front end and the back end, and they would be able to come with not a sort of pixel-perfect design, but sort of a, a set of screens that someone, a user, could click through and to be able to get some feedback. So that was something we would always push ourselves to do is if they, we were going to undertake something that was, you know, I'd say medium to large, that we would try to put pen to paper, so to speak, get that in a in a Figma mockup that we could then go to one of our marketplace vendors or go to a digital ocean end user or a couple and, and really show them that and see how they interact with it, hear their feedback. In terms of other ways to get feedback, the I think the challenge in today's product management teams, uh, or rather product teams, is that if you are in a say a SaaS company that's doing, I would say, 10 million plus a year, the amount of data that is coming out of the systems and from the customers, et cetera, it's it's frankly overwhelming. And so part of what you need to do is really try to figure out, you know, what is the feedback you really need to pay attention to and listen to? What is the feedback cycle that you need to look at for certain types of data versus other types of data? So, So anyway, it's not an easy solution but you do need to kind of keep your eye on all those sources as a as a product leader. And I'm sure now with uh, AI really kind of taking center stage, I think this will hopefully in the coming years get easier for product leaders to really sort through the digital ocean. I think we had, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was like a double digit number of places besides directly talking to customers that we could get information about what customers are doing. And it's like totally overwhelming. So I think there are there's an opportunity in the market for something that can kind of help PMs uh, in product teams solve that. And so when you think about building an experience within the product, right, of how users interact with your product, what are some elements to consider from that customer experience to build that you're building into it? What are some misconceptions within even customer identity per se that that customer that product managers really need to be thinking about when they're building that uh, that experience? DigitalOcean, one of the things that uh, was definitely important to our customers was the concept of uh, team accounts. So if I'm an individual DigitalOcean customer, I have an individual account and I can sort of do whatever I'm going to do. But if I'm working with a whole team, the team needs to have a certain level of access. I need to be able to add and remove people from those teams. And depending on the individual roles within the teams that I set up, those team members should only have certain levels of access. And so thinking through all of that as a product manager actually took quite a bit of headspace because you you need to think about who should have access to the resources, who shouldn't, how should that be managed? And then not only do you have to sort of build that into the product, but then there's actually quite a bit of testing that goes on there as well to make sure all those different cases work. There's also another really interesting thing for us was an existing customer who is already in the platform, they start using a new product versus someone who signs up brand new for the platform and the first product they're going to use is your product. What is that experience like? 
because it's going to be different than the customer experience for someone who is already on your platform. And that was always an area too, where it's like, okay, we got to take a step back. We got to do some brainstorming, get on the whiteboard and make sure we're capturing all the relevant cases so that either type of customer is going to get a really seamless type of experience. The other side of that for the one of the products I worked on, the marketplace is we had like DigitalOcean end users and, th- and that was like its own thing. But then we also had these vendors, right? And they had their own needs around authentication and who can do what within the vendor sandbox, so to speak. And so we, we sort of had that like two times over versus uh, a typical product team who maybe would just be servicing uh, an end user. Yeah, you made me think about uh, a point around experimentation when you were talking about testing as well, right? Like, I, I think experiments are really key to driving those customer learnings and, you know, getting the outcomes that you're trying to drive to just based on that insight. What are, if you can think about maybe some experiments or tests that you've run in the past, what are some of the most impactful experiments that you've ever run? What, you know, what, what were the outcomes? What'd you learn? What, what inspired you in the first place to even conduct that experiment? Experimentation is something I can talk about for a long time. And, and, and I actually really picked up quite a bit of uh, methodology and, and best practices around that. Actually, from my time prior to DigitalOcean, I was a product manager at Amazon within their display advertising business, where experimentation is, is, is very much part of the day-to-day there. And so working with data scientists and folks who had worked in the online advertising industry for for decades, really started to get an appreciation for data and also not taking data at face value, digging in to really understand what is the data actually saying and how to set up true experiments that really have testing control groups. The word experiment gets thrown around constantly and, and, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. And saying experiment could mean many things to many different people. If you're talking about doing multivariate testing where you have a testing control group, that is a specific type of experiment. And that in the world of, of SaaS and, and, and you know, sort of uh, product-led SaaS, if you will, that I think is often what people are talking about around experimentation. And in terms of specific experiments that uh, were particularly notable and impactful, I would actually flip it to say that building the muscle within a team that you have a culture of experimentation, and this is something you do uh, just as part of the, the, the day-to-day, that is actually the more important thing because the more experiments you do, the more chances you will have to actually come to some kind of an insight. If you're only doing two experiments a year, chances are you're not gonna get an insight because the chances that one of those two experiments will reach a level of statistical significance is, is, is probably not great unless you really, really know what you're doing and you're, you're an expert on this kind of stuff. So the key is really to build a culture of experimentation and so, you know, we got to the point on our team at DigitalOcean where our UX lead was actually driving a lot of the experimental definition and really thinking about that as she was designing the UX for a specific feature. And, you know, that really helped us make sure that we were able to get those experiments into production much easier versus just, because a lot of times it's the product managers like, oh, like we should run an experiment. But if you're not really baking that into the team process and 
that understanding and that buy-in within the team and really getting everyone involved, then you're going to be doing, you know, if you're lucky, a couple experiments a year, which is just, you're not going to, you're, you're, you're going to have to get very lucky to learn something impactful. Yeah, I think I think a key there is, like you said, it's not it's it's staying away from the buzzword of experimenting or experimentation, right? And it's about having like clear you know, clear outcomes, a clear process for what you're trying to deliver. One of the things I was listening to in a, in a podcast you did a, a little while back, just talking about minimum vial product and and how you need to like how do you actually know when you've got a good MVP? I, I'd love to hear your perspective on that on an MVP, how do you know when you've got a good MVP? What does that look like? I was talking about before that example of where we had to cut scope on that release and that MVP that we used was actually, a, was a Google sheet, I mean, a Google form, like that was the MVP. So I actually feel super strongly about low code and no code MVPs as a way to learn a lot before you start laying down code. Because the example that I gave around uh, this this vendor portal in our marketplace, if we had just started on day one and like did some designs and like built the spec, we would have overbuilt the thing by 50%. Whereas the approach we took, we actually ended up building, you know, I think probably, you know, probably within 90 to 95% of what we actually really needed. Like we probably missed, you know, a couple of small things, but we were able to, the logo example is a great example. We could have spent two weeks specking that logo feature, but hey, at the end of the day, it didn't end up being important. So we just shipped it later. You know, we like slipped it into like a subsequent sprint. You know what I mean? And that, that's a feature that, you know, you could argue we could have even spent more time on had we not known that, hey, this is not going to be something that gets used a lot. Intuitively, I guess it's a logo, right? So maybe, maybe we should have known that at the outset. But we actually had the data because we could see how customers were interacting or rather vendors were interacting with that Google form, which was our MVP in that case. That's the key, because what I was going to say around product management is I always feel like MVP gets thrown around, right? It's like, oh, yeah, that's another one. Experiment and MVP. Experiment, MVP. Yeah. Let's just hit on all the buzzwords. But I feel yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's exactly what happens with product like product teams is that. They'll, they'll say, okay, we just need an MVP, especially if you're early in sort of your, your SaaS journey or really just your application building journey. You're saying, I need to get time to market. I need to get to market fast. We just need an MVP. But like, how do you know when you've actually got a good MVP? What does good look like? What is what is a good MVP? Well, I feel like a good MVP is having really like well-defined both exit criteria for how when you launch the whatever the product is, but even just something you hit on there of, of bringing the teams along and having very you know succinct testing criteria and looking at how it's being uh, interacted with your you know quote unquote MVP uh, is something that I find really interesting. But yeah, I mean, if you've got additional perspective, I'd love to hear on you know how do you know when you've got a good MVP and what is an MVP in the first place? Yeah, hindsight is is always twenty twenty, and so one of the things in thinking about the use of the term MVP and how that gets thrown around as much as the term experiment with multiple different definitions, depending on who you ask. I, I would actually, just looking back, I don't think even talking about an MVP is the way to, like even using the words MVP at all, I think it's more about we are trying to solve a customer problem. The customer has a bunch of different problems. What's the first problem? that we want to attempt to solve for them? And how quickly can we ship something that we believe hypothetically could solve that problem? That to me is 
an MVP. Again, not a big fan of the word, but I think that because some people might think, oh, an MVP means the same thing as like a customer beta, which I, I don't actually agree with. Like I think an MVP is, is, uh, is sort of its own thing. Because the term gets so misused, it probably just makes sense to stop using it and just focus your product team on, here's the customer problem we're trying to solve. Here's the hypothesis we, we have about how we can solve it for them. Here's the first attempt at that. Here's the important key metrics we're going to look at. And oh, by the way, you're kidding yourself if you're going to look at 20 metrics. You're not. You need like a couple, like one, two, maybe three. That's another thing that I think, uh, while we're on the topic of things that, you know, experiments, the yeah, could thrown around, MVPs is another thing that gets thrown around. And then there's uh, the, the uh, oh, you know, we, we need to have 75 KPIs for this product. And I, I used to work at Amazon, so it was like to the nth degree where, um, you know, KPIs and, and data for everything. And one thing I took away from my Amazon experience in a very positive way was that awareness and thought around data. But on the flip side, I realized we don't need to go that crazy with 372 different metrics for a single feature. Like we, uh, we probably just need to focus on like one or two, which is why uh, one of the things that started to implement DigitalOcean more broadly was the concept of an activation metric for products. And I really like that concept because the way that our uh, chief product officers sort of defined it is it's the metric that a product team thinks represents truly active use of our product, right? So for a DigitalOcean product, it wouldn't be uh, logging in. Like that wouldn't be a relevant activation metric because the person didn't actually get any value. But for the droplet product, it could be customer spins up a droplet maybe, right? But, but you know, leaving it to the teams to really kind of talk about and debate what is that active use metric. So uh, that was something that really started to get pushed pretty heavily uh, sort of um, towards the end of my stint there by the, the CPO. And, and I thought that made a lot of sense. And, and I think, you know, pretty much any product team should have an activation metric for their products and recognize that, uh, A, it will change over time. And B, it will actually take you time to instrument that activation metric. It's not like you wake up to, well, some small startups, you know, maybe they can turn on a dime, right? But most product teams at a bigger SaaS company, they're going to need to, uh, you know, plan out, okay, how do we measure this thing? The thing you want to measure, yeah, sure, ideally you want to measure it, but it's going to take half your engineering team three months to implement. It's like, okay, well, is it is it worth it to measure based on that? Or is there another activation metric that like, it, it's like maybe 80% as strong, but mm -hmm. like we can implement it in a week. <laughs> Thinking about activation metrics and all of these things and how you track the success of a product in the feedback loop, how can you be sure that you're building the right thing? Like even in terms of prioritization, are we working on the right feature? Are we working on the right capability? Maybe give some insight and it might be based around some of the activation metrics that you just talked about, but how can listeners, folks in the product you know, uh, realm domain, how can they be sure that they're building the right thing? If I had the answer to that, I would uh, probably be retired <laughs> on a beach right now, but I'm still working. The uh, I mean, I think it's what, what's what's more important to focus on is building that culture where you're able to rapidly generate test hypotheses, generate and test hypotheses, and then learn and then repeat the process. 
because nine times out of 10, you're not going to nail it the first time. But if you get more reps in, you will quickly get to a point where you're hitting the mark on the things that you're trying to hit the mark on. Now, that, that's not 100%. Like you, you could be totally off the mark with just the vision and the strategy of what this product should be. But in most cases, you launch a thing and it's like, some of it seems to be working great. And some of it's like, well, why aren't they using this feature? Why aren't they doing this thing that we had expected? And then you've got to just kind of iterate on that. So I don't think there's really, I mean, unless you're Steve Jobs and there's only one of Steve Jobs, right? I don't think you can really nail it the first time, at least not, not, not normal mortals like myself. I think you're right. Obviously, if if we all had the answer to that question, we would all be retired and you wouldn't need product managers because <laughs> we would just know what it takes to build exactly, you know, amazing products that, that customers love. One thing in terms of uh, figuring out like what is the right product to ship and, and having more of a chance to get it right, besides the team culture aspects of generating ideas, being able to rapidly ship those ideas to test hypotheses and then repeating the process is also, and this was something that I, you know, sort of learned from Nick, who I was talking about before, is really being able to let us take a step back and let people do the jobs that they want to do and love to do. So there were things, I remember I would actually debate with um, not Nick, but, but another uh, manager I had worked for where he was um, sort of very opinionated on the amount of hands-on testing a product manager should do on a product. And my take on that was very different than than his because I was thinking about it like any product manager in terms of trade-offs. Like I could test a corner case myself for two hours or I could spend those two hours you know, digging into data and coming up with like the next sort of major thing we want to work on next quarter. What's the higher value thing, especially on a feature where maybe it's like not, maybe it's the logo upload feature I keep talking about, right? Like, I'm like, why would I spend two hours on that? So anyway, uh, so, so I think that's one piece of, of that philosophy, you know, and other pieces, you know, some, I think product managers would really get into the weeds on, how the feature is like visually designed. And my approach was, hey, UX lead, you know UX really well, front end, you know what's possible. And you know when to pull in the back end team to make sure that it's all going to stitch together. Yes, I'll come and give feedback once we have some mock-ups and, and things like that. But I don't need to sit in the, uh, you know, every individual feature designing session, right? That's That's probably not productive for the team, doesn't let the team run as fast. And, you know, I, I have the opportunity to give my input at, at some point. And, and actually, you have the opportunity not to take my input, right? Like, in most cases, it's like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I mean, a lot of, I think, what a product manager needs to do is, is ask, ask questions and authentic questions, not like leading questions, but questions that are, hey, have you thought about this? Or, hey, if we do it this way, then this other thing's going to happen. Can you talk to me more about that? And so through those conversations, you get to a better end state for a product. And that end state's not going to match 100% maybe what you as the PM had thought six months ago when you envisioned this thing. But the end product is going to be something that's close enough to that and that the team is really bought into and really excited about and has really had a hand at shaping and owning. 
Yeah, you're you're really hitting on a theme here around innovation. Another another buzzword to throw to throw out there as well. So we've got innovation. Uh, you know, we've got uh, <laughs> a couple of other ones <laughs> as well. Innovation MVPs and yeah, MVPs, innovation. Yeah. What else can we throw in there? <laughs> buzzword, 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 business buzzword bingo. Um, but thinking about that concept around really because I think like innovation is all around how we can help our teams move faster towards that that common goal, that outcome of launching our product, right? So when we think about building versus buying in that concept, right, of does my team, my product management and so- or software delivery team or software engineering team or engineering team, do we spend cycles or spend energy on building something that we maybe don't have necessarily all of the in-house capabilities for today? Or do we look at buying something that can help us move faster, that can help us innovate quicker, that can help us launch that product faster. Any thoughts or any stories you have on this concept of building versus buying uh, that you can think of? Build versus buy is something that comes up a lot as a product manager. And sometimes it comes up at the feature level. And sometimes it comes up at more at the product strategy level. And both are very different types of discussions. At the micro level, I remember part of our our marketplace, we were building a lot of the management capabilities for the marketplace, uh, third-party vendors to manage their their apps in the marketplace. And there was an element of what we were doing that the engineering team could certainly have built out, or we could have used a third-party solution. Zapier was the one, so it's a a no-code solution. And we were using it sort of tied in with some of the processes to fire off webhooks in in certain cases when vendors did certain things. Uh, Anyway, I remember that that was sort of viewed as is very hacky, you know, something that we we didn't necessarily want to keep for the long term. Uh, and, And that was sort of, I think a few of the engineers on the team felt that way. What we ended up finding is that it actually worked flawlessly for, for a couple of years. I think it may have gotten replaced at some point. So there's some things that I think as a product manager, you may have an intuition like, hey, this is more something we can just like get something off the shelf. But, you know, part of it is like, even if that's possible, you want to really make sure the engineering team understands like, hey, these are some other options out here. Here's why they might be helpful to us. On the flip side, there was the example I gave earlier about how we, instead of creating a whole vendor portal to manage vendor applications in the marketplace on day one, we we started with a Google form and some backend scripts that one of the engineers wrote. And in that case, I would say we went a little bit too long in terms of like running with that versus starting to to build out that that you know, actual kind of application for those vendors to use. You know, I don't think we were uh, you know many months late, but there's probably like a month or two where it was like, it got kind of tedious and painful and maybe we should have started a little bit earlier. So, you know, you can sort of see on both sides of the ball. That's not really a, well, I guess it is kind of a build versus buy, right? Instead of building an app right away, actually you're getting a Google form for free, right? You have to really pay for that. (laughs) But it's, uh, you you bought a free thing to help you solve the same, the same problem. To introduce another buzzword, because, uh, you know, why not? I think uh, we're up to four now, (laughs) or this will be four, but when we think about the, this this theme of innovation um, and this this buzzword of disrupting or being a disruptor, right? What's what would you say the importance of being a disruptor in in the tech industry is, and 
is it more important for a large company or a smaller firm to be the like be more of the disruptor to disrupt more? You know, that's where I think culture and leadership comes in. Do you have a culture that's willing to engage in those conversations? And actually, you're not going to pick every single wild random idea that comes through. But like to really believe you work at an innovative company, you have to see some of those stories emerge and some of those those new products emerge and, and, and get worked on. Because folks who work in tech, they generally like to... Uh, they like to work on new stuff, right? A lot of engineers, if you're like, can you work, do you want to work on a brand new product? They're like, do incremental improvements to an existing. Like it's always going to be the first for like 95% of them, right? Same for product manager. I mean, I was the same way. And so if people don't believe that that is an opportunity where they are, then that that larger company is just not going to have any real chance to quote unquote disrupt. And, and those people are probably going to go elsewhere and, and do that somewhere else. I think this has been really good so far. Um, so just quick hits will be around like fun stuff, you know, things you're thinking about, what you wish you would have known in the past, et cetera. Uh, so first question I'll start off with is a fun one and kind of like a bridge or a segue to what we were talking about around in- innovation. What's the number one tech development that you're most looking forward to? I am super excited about where AI is going. I uh, leave uh, ChatGPT open on my computer all day. And I'm using it pretty much every single day to get real work done in my business. And, and I'm only scratching the surface. There's so many other things I could be doing with it related to my business. I just like, haven't been able to yet, just time-wise. And so I am just so excited to see, because pretty much every company is going to implement, you know, I would say ChatGPT is sort of the leader in OpenAI, right? I, I think over the next 24 months to see pretty much every software company like implement that to enable new use cases. It's just going to be really awesome and exciting to be in tech because like every product you use, you're going to see, oh, now it does this like really cool thing because of, of AI and it's going to make me so much more productive or allow me to create things I couldn't create before, open up new product opportunities. So I'm like a full, I've drunk in the Kool-Aid on AI. I can't believe we made it to the nearly the end of this episode and we've only just mentioned AI now, <laughs> but I fully agree with you. That's that's something that I'm really looking forward to as well as I think just the developments that we're seeing daily in, you know, LLM models, new AI uh, plugins, et cetera, things that are coming. I'm super excited about that. All right, next question. Uh, what's the best tech advice that you've ever gotten? If you don't mind, I want to flip that. <laughs> in terms of the best tech advice I would give. Ah, And so for anyone who's building uh, a career in tech, broadly defined, I would say uh, learn how to manipulate data from the uh, command line. So if you use a Mac or, you know, Windows uh, to a certain extent, but, you know, I would say more, it's more applicable for Mac users is, because one of the things I do all the time is, I take files, I need to um, sort of reformat them or like get an answer out of some data. And it's, it's, it's the type of thing where pulling it into a spreadsheet is like, it's like a little too cumbersome. And frankly, I'm not that great with spreadsheets, but uh, I have a system administration background. So I know a little bit of command line stuff, but here's the rub going back to the AI thing we just talked about. I am finding myself constantly going to chat GPT saying, here's a line from a file. All the file lines look like this. Tell me how I can make sure that I print the second field and the fifth field of the line. And 
it's like almost always gives me exactly what I need. And that's crazy to me because now it's like, wow, I just became, became 10 times more productive. A thing that would have taken me an hour to go and stack overflow and look up and hack around with literally this thing spits out the code. And so I'm super excited about that. Some people I think also kind of fear that, which I understand, but just the, the impact in terms of productivity is, is just going to be huge for people who really do start to experiment with these, these technologies or, or use them in products that are going to start to implement them over time. Definitely, definitely agree. I think you get to understand how you, when you ask better questions, you get a better output and it just iterates on itself, right? You get the output, you're not happy with it. You ask better questions, you get a better output. Uh, it's just it's just amazing where that tech's going. What about the uh, your favorite thing? What's the favorite thing that you're either reading or watching right now? I'm not doing a lot of reading or watching right now, other than the Boston Red Sox, but uh, I don't think that's maybe uh, relevant to the conversation. Well, it would be because I'm a Jays fan, so. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. If you had to live anywhere in the world, where would that be? So I'm in New York City, and I'm super happy here. So I, uh, I'm, yeah, I think I'm already, I'm already there. I uh, wouldn't mind uh, maybe having a place somewhere uh, warmer in the winter, but, you know, I think in the coming years, maybe that's a possibility so I can scratch that itch. John, thanks again for joining this episode of the Mistaken Identity Podcast. Maybe give our listeners a sense for where they can find you online. How do they stay up to date with what you're working on? Yeah, happy to share that. You can go to johngannonblog.com or on Twitter, I'm John M. Gannon. And either of those places are a great way to see what I'm up to. Awesome. Thanks so much again for joining the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mistaken Identity, a podcast brought to you by Okta. As the leading independent identity partner, we free everyone to safely use any technology, anywhere, on any device or app. Find us at Okta.com.